0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Warrior Next Door podcast. My name is Ryan Fairfield. And I'm Tony Lupo. And we um, are, you know, right in the middle of the, the holiday season. It's getting ready to kick off in the month of December. Um, And we have a really special show today. Um, It's going to be just a one-off show, but we have a guest that we're going to talk to on this show, and uh, he's an author. Um, His name is Peter Lyon. He's a native of New England, and he studied journalism at Southern Connecticut State University. And then he went on a career in television um, during his 20 years in the industry. He's been a news producer, writer, reporter, and has won multiple Emmy Awards as a director, um, he's also the author of two books, the American St. Nick and another book called Merg. And, uh, they're both individual stories essentially about a uh, central character. And so anyway, we'd like to welcome Peter. Thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you guys. I know we've been, uh, we've been talking about this for, for ages. So yeah, here it is. This is, this is great. So <laughs> can we, so can we unpack your bio a little bit? <laughs> sure.
2: Absolutely. Sure. I, I saw <laughs> I saw a couple of things as I was lurking in in the inner webland to to see the sort of things you're working on. I mean one of the things that that's listed in your bio is that you were a former producer and director of ESPN and NBC Sports. Could you I mean, what was, what was that all about?
1: Um I well that's uh I was uh, living and working in Pittsburgh way back in the mists of time and I got a call from ESPN saying you know do you want to complain our reindeer games and i was i was a director producer director at the time and and uh it was it was as, as don corleone would say they made me an offer i couldn't refuse so i went and spent the next 16 years there and wow. then uh after uh after basically doing every show on the network uh, in studio on remote live taped or whatever i was kind of looking for something else and uh made the move to nbc sports where I eventually did a couple of Olympics and things like that, so it was a, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was great. That, yeah,
2: that's amazing. I mean, this is this is a podcast about you know history and particularly military history, World War II history. But I just thought it was really fascinating. I mean, it's a holiday season, sports and is in full full bloom. Right, we got the college. Uh, games going on nFL games going on so did you, were there any per, uh, like sports personalities that you had a chance to meet or rub shoulders with that you could share a story with us before we move forward with that? oh
1: gosh um i mean yeah there's been um I, there's been so many over the over the <laughs> the course of like a twenty five year career um I will tell you though uh, there there's one story that's always my favorite, and um i happily share it with you. It, it was when I was actually in Boston, Massachusetts, working in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm. And I was at that time, I was a technical director. So the technical director is different than the director. The director is the guy that says, you know, ready camera one, take camera one, ready camera two, ca- take camera two, standby effects three. The technical director is the guy that actually pushes the buttons and makes it happen. So I was in Boston. I was working as a technical director. And what we uh, did um, at that time were Boston Red Sox games. And, um, during homestands, we would park our production truck right in the back corner of the player's parking lot, just outside Fenway park. And we would all sort of take the company van and go there and, you know, set up for for the games and everything. And if it was a homestand, once you had your truck set up that, you know, you kind of just showed up the next day and everything's ready to go. You just sat down and did your thing. So there were a group of us sort of hanging out on the, on the steps of the truck, waiting for the game to begin. And, um, Roger Clemens comes by, and Roger, when he wasn't pitching on off days, and a lot of people don't know this, and he, he was and probably still is a fitness freak and would jog around the neighborhood around Fenway. I mean, it, it was not uncommon to just be driving your car and say, there's Roger Clemens. I mean, you think about that now, it's like, that's like, oh, my God, unheard of. But he would, he would jog around the neighborhood. So he was coming back uh, to, the, to, the, to the locker room um after one of his jogs and he sees us there so somebody in the crew struck up a conversation with roger and he was just chatting with us and everything and and i had caught a foul ball at a ball game about a week before and i had it with me and i said hey roger would you w- would you mind signing a ball for me and he's like i would but you know what i gotta they want me inside because we got to be in uniform when the game starts and everything and i'm thinking oh okay like <laughs> really, like, how long would it take to sign a ball? Really, yeah, he just blew you off. I did. He like big time, and I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever, you know. And then the game starts, and we all assume the positions that we were in, and meet technical directors in front of the truck, and I'm in the left, you know, front bench left side. Directors to my right. And about the fourth inning, the door to the truck flies open, and there's Roger Clemens, full <laughs> uniform, and he says, "Hey, did somebody want me to sign a ball?" And I'm, they're like, "Well, yeah, I, I I And so I reached Got the ball, got him a pen, and it was the, the year that he struck out 20 batters for the first time. This was in, in 86. So he wow. signed to two Peter Best Wishes, Roger Clemens, 20Ks. And then oh. he sat in the truck for probably the next 45 minutes wanting to know what we all did and how we did it and how it affected what we oh. saw on TV, you know, like that. And it was and then he then he did have to like eventually go back, you know, into the into the bullpen, because like you know, they like to get camera shots of like the starters when they're not, you know, when they're not starting in the bullpen. And so he left the truck and it, to this day, it's still stuck with me that, you know, here's this guy, he didn't have to come back or anything, but he, he was like, he came back to the truck just, That's just to awesome. sign this one ball for this one kid, you know, it's what I, what the time So ever since then, no matter what team he played for, no matter whatever controversy was going on, Roger was always the man for me. And I'm like, you know, you can't say anything bad about <laughs> Roger around me. Cause like this guy, you know, he didn't have to do it and he, and he came back and it well, was great. And we flash forward because there's one there's one more like like put put a little asterisk on the story. to get back to the ESPN days, ESPN still does and used to do these, uh, this is sports center commercials. And they would and those people don't realize those were actually filmed on the ESPN campus in the buildings. And we'd always get memos that said, like, just, you know, FYI, heads up, or, uh, this is Sports Center commercials will be shooting, so you might have to, like, you know, make different arrangements on how to get to from the one building to the next because they would, like, close it off to set up, you know, lights and everything. And I'm walking down the hall one day, and I turned a corner and just about literally bumped into a guy in a Toronto Blue Jays jersey who was there, obviously, like, for the commercial. I was like, oh, excuse me. And I kept walking. I'm stopping. I went, wait a minute. That's Roger Clemens. Because at that time he was pitching for the Blue Jays, and his commercial was he was supposed to be at the copy machine printing out K's from the copy machine because of all the stripes. <laughs> remember that commercial. Remember that commercial? <laughs> right? And so it's like, right, I, and it didn't occur to me till I was halfway down the like the, the flight of stairs. I'm like, wait a minute, that that was right. And I wanted, to – I still wanted to go back and like tell him about this whole story, and it just I never got the chance to. But it was like, so that was sort of like the the, the bookend of that little of that little story. So what's what's amazing?
0: Guess, what's amazing to me is that apparently. Needing him inside the locker room before the game was apparently far more important than letting that he, he was okay to leave during the game, right. you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It was, it was, <laughs> his, I guess, I guess, you know, at that time they really, they, at, when the game started, they wanted all the players, whether they were, Playing that day or not, especially pitchers, obviously, but they wanted them in uniform so that you know they could be seen on camera. It's like you know, here's the, here's the the rest of the rotation, like hanging out in the dugout. But once the game started, you know they would they would retreat to the locker room or hang out. And you know, starting pitchers, man, obviously, if you're you know a relief pitcher, you're in the bullpen. But starting pitchers, they they you know they're they're not scheduled to, to be in there. So that, I don't know if that's changed, but that's the way it used to be. And it was just, I mean, it was just one of those funny things that like. You know, he, he did not have to come back, and he did. So that's sure <laughs> you know, high I mean, praise for me all the time. I, so I, I'm a huge Roger Clemens fan as well. I, I
2: I think he's amazing, and I think he should be in the Hall of Fame, regardless of some of the controversy that you referred right. to. He's, I mean, he 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 just mowed people down. I mean,
1: five sung, five Cy Young awards. He was he was the rocket. He was at that time probably the most dominant pitcher in the game. Mm. I mean, it was just he was. Yeah. yeah, he was money every
2: time he took hooked mile, and that's hard to do. And and so with, with this career at ESPN and all these amazing stories, you just kind of just told two off the top of your head. <laughs> how did you go from
1: not – why did you not write a book about that? How did you write a ready book about history of World War II? Well, it's it's part of how it all kind of blends together – No, I started that story by saying I was working and living in Pittsburgh at the time when ESPN called me. And it was while I was in Pittsburgh that one of my uh, very dear friends at the time and still is, uh, came up to me one day. He was also a director at this station I was working at, KDKA in Pittsburgh. And um, he was telling me that he was going to be taking his family on a vacation to Luxembourg at the end of November that year. And I, 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 kind of recoiled a bit. And at the time, I didn't really know a lot about Luxembourg. But I did know that going there at the end of November, it was going to be cold and rainy and snowy. And I just, and I said, it was like, what, was Disney World closed? Why came why, like, up <laughs> to Luxembourg? And he said, oh, well, no, it's, it's I, I got to go over the furthest thing my dad did during the war. And I, of course, that piqued my interest because I had like six or seven uncles that were in the war and, you know, they all came home. Um, and so I was just like, well, and I've always had a fascination with all things World War II. And I, and I said, oh, well, what, what did he do? And he says, you really want to know? And I said, yeah, yeah. What, what did he do? So he gave me the five-minute cliff note version of the story. And guys, I got to say, when he was done, I was gobsmacked, you know, jaw agape, like, oh, my God, what a great story. You know, and, he, and he's like, oh, no, all those guys had stories like that. I'm like, no, no, this. This is pretty amazing. Pretty Someone should write a book about this. And then it was like, you know, the light bulb went on. I was like, wait a minute, I'll write a book about this. You know, give me your dad's phone number. And that's, that's kind of how it all took place. So the, the writing of it and the researching of it actually started when I was in Pittsburgh. And then it, when I left and went to, to ESPN, it kind of carried over. And many was the time I was, you know, I would be writing. And uh, I, I, at, one, at one point I was doing the, the 11 o'clock sports center directing 11 o'clock sports center. And I would have to be in to work, say like at three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. And I would get up, make a cup of coffee. I'd sit down and start writing and I would work straight through until it was time for me to leave. And then that was sort of my routine that I would either be researching or writing, you know, right up until like, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon and I'd have to get up, go and go to work. come home, And it was like rinse and repeat. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's how I got it done.
0: So who was the, who was the son that you spoke to, who 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 had the the relationship to the story?
1: Yeah, that was Terry Brookins, and uh, Terry again. He was uh, he was one of Dick Brookins' sons. Uh, he's got two others, Don and and David, and he also has a daughter, Carol. But Terry and I were uh, you know we were best buds at, at the time, and I mean, don't get me—we still are. We just <laughs> we're just miles <laughs> apart now. But uh, he, uh, yeah, no, he when he told me the story, I was uh, I was totally hooked. And uh, and to be honest with you, completely fair, it took me probably about six months before I actually made the phone call to his father, uh, Richard, to, to to introduce myself. And, and And only because I wanted to have enough informational background and questions and things like that. So when I did call, I would be able to like, you know, have a decent conversation with him and try to get as much information. I knew it was going to be a a one-off conversation, but I wanted to try to, as, as best I could to get the ball rolling as quickly and as, as substantive, sub, substantive, as exactly. deeply as possible. And uh, so, so I, I had all these questions lined up and I, I never forget the first time I called him up and uh, uh, I introduced myself and I said, you know, hi, my name is Peter. I'm, you know, friends with Terry and you know, he told me about your story and, 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 and I want to write about your story. And his reaction was, I'll never forget. he said, Oh, yeah. He had this kind of <laughs> gruff voice. And I was like, wow, this is not the, you know, you tell somebody you want to write a story about them. I was expecting a little bit, you know, a little bit more. But what I came to realize was that, you know, for Richard, you know, as as you find out when you read the book, he had, you know, been living this story for, you know, this was in the uh, mid-90s. So he had been living this story for, the, you know, 20, 25 years Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people are doing math right now saying, wait, wait, that doesn't add up, but it will when you read the books, it makes sense. But he had been living this story for about 25 years, and so he was used to people wanting to get his his version of it or doing a TV interview or a radio interview or or something for a newspaper, especially on the marquee anniversaries, like the the 40th, the 45th, the 50th anniversary of of these events. And so he was used to it. So here was just another guy calling him, but I think, you know, once I... Uh, we got over that initial phone call and and started talking to him. He actually he opened up quite a bit. And through you know through the years, actually even after the book was published and everything, we became very very good friends. Like I I almost looked at him as, as like an uncle or a father. I mean we would we would talk all the time. I would call him up all the time. He had and, I, and every time every single time I called him up, I we'd have a conversation. We'd just be chatting, and he'd say. Ah, uh, Peter, did I ever tell you about that time? And he'd give me another nugget of a story, and I'm like, "Oh my God, Dick, why didn't you tell me that when I was writing the book? <laughs> yeah. I would have, I would have put that <laughs> in." And he goes, "Well, you didn't ask me." And I'm like, you know, it's,
2: <laughs> "So, you know, Peter, so. We, as interviewers for the the as as volunteer interviewers for the Library of Congress and that, whose, inter, whose uh, interviews we feature in his podcast, we run into that all the time. We Ryan just ran into that with uh, someone that we just featured named Bill Parker." Who stormed Omaha Beach, first wave, uh, back in 1944? And every time Ryan goes and hangs out with him, because he's from the Tulsa area, he gets a little nugget. We have to put these little addendums in, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Right. <laughs>
2: but but so the book that you're you're talking about writing is the first book that you have written uh,
1: on on World War II. You have two. It's called The American Saint Nick. It, it is a story about a handful of GIs. Who, as I think, it even says this on the book jacket, during the darkest days of World War II, just before the Battle of the Bulge, um, helped bring Christmas back to this small Luxembourg town, and in do so, in doing so, they created this uh, event that's now, you know, coming eight decades in and in, in, in still going strong. And that's that is based. That's basically the story. You know, there's there's. So much detail behind the story that is, you know, it's, it's very difficult to actually encapsulate it. But if, you know, if, at the granular level, that's it. It's these, it was these handful of soldiers that just decided to do something nice for the children of this town, small town of Viltz, one, you know, one afternoon. And, and that's how the story was born. Yeah, and the thing that I thought was amazing, the whole book is amazing,
2: right? And that's why we have you on because we're like, holy crap, this this is a really <laughs> awesome story. Very well written, but what I thought was amazing is how you how you articulate the sort of poverty that the civilian population was forced to endure as an occupied nation as a small nation in Luxembourg. And to me, it it it's like, you know, the the sort of things that the GIs had
1: available for this Christmas, I mean, it would have seemed like heaven to them. Absolutely. A hundred percent correct. I mean, I don't think people realize, you know, Luxembourg pretty much, um, again, let's talk about before the battle of the bulge, Luxembourg was pretty much, and I say untouched by war. What I mean by that is by the destruction of the war. You know, there were certainly some skirmishes and whatnot, but you know, basically, all the buildings were intact. They had, there was they were uh, uh, they were not the subject of any any major bombing raids or anything like that. There was n- really no uh, major fighting on their soil. Again, we're all talking pre pre-bulge. So let's keep that in, in mind here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was literally like uh, pretty much out of a storybook. I mean, that these small little towns looked like you know almost fairy tale towns. And um, so when the GIs get there, you know they're they're completely. Uh, uh, just sort of t- taken aback by how beautiful the place is. You know, and yes, mm-hmm. it's, it's November, it's December, it's it's snowing, all that. But still, these places are are, are are relatively untouched and gorgeous. Don't forget, as they fought their way across Europe, across France and into Belgium, that was not the case. I mean, there were whole cities that had been razed by the battle. So they finally get to Luxembourg and, oh my gosh, here are these beautiful towns. So they settled in. And it was also important to remind, as a reminder that, where they had been prior coming to this town of Vilsen and coming to Luxembourg, they were in the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest. And the Hurtgen Forest battle was one of the bloodiest uh, battles of World War II. And um, there's, I go into some of the detail about that in the book. Um, but suffice to say that when the 28th Infantry Division, which was uh, a major um, part of this battle for the first two weeks of November, they were only in the Hurtgen for two weeks. And in that time, uh, uh, one th- basically um, two-thirds of the division, and again, I was trying to think, there's about 9,000, 10,000 guys in a division. Two-thirds of the division were casualties of this one wow. battle. So when they were pulled out of battle and sent westward for some R&R to, to what was known as the quiet sector, which was Luxembourg, you know, they were pretty beat up and they arrive into this storybook town having just, you know, no way else to put it, got their asses kicked. They get to this storybook town to rest, to recuperate, to resupply, to, you know, and to, to re-up with, with personnel. Um, And they had some, some menial tasks to do while they were there. For instance, they were also responsible for um, front line defense you know they were set up as sort of guards and you know to guard the, the lines but again they were spread so far apart there was like probably uh, at some points a quarter mile between outposts so the, you know it was hmm. to say that they it was were a
0: quiet part of the front wasn't it?
1: right so saying that they were yeah. in taking up defensive positions was yeah they still had things to do but it wasn't really that that you know that uh, intensive um, so they they arrive in, in this town, and it is a storybook town, and they come to realize that while things look great for them, now that they're out of this battle and everything, they come to realize from talking to the people in town that life had not actually been so great. I mean, the the, the ravages of war had left these people with nothing. I mean, when the Germans pulled out and retreated, they took Basically everything that wasn't nailed down. So these, I mean, these poor people had. There was no food. There was no medication. There was nothing, and they were, in a lot of ways, relying on the U.S. troops to help them, you know, stay afloat at that time. And the and the troops, they did respond. They they shared with with their uh, with their, their their Luxembourg hosts, as it were, um, and you know they, they were they were billeted in many of the homes and, and the hotels in town, and they would share things from their rations and such. And it was through a conversation that one of these soldiers had with a local in town. Um, and the soldier's name was Harry Stutz. And Harry had befriended this gentleman in town, um, a guy named Schneider, who's, uh, who had a, a, a niece. And they, were get, they got to talking, and t- Harry came to find out that one of the things that the, the Germans did when they went into Luxembourg, and part of the reason why Luxembourg was still intact, is that they, were not, they, they didn't come into Luxembourg as invaders. Remember, this is the German side of things, but they came as liberators. So they were looking to annex Luxembourg and welcome Luxembourg back into the fatherland as part of Germany. Well, the Luxembourg people want to no know part of that. They're very proud people. And so they did what they could to resist and, and whatnot. Um, but the... Germans still tried to re-educate the population. They changed all the road signs to, to, to German uh, street names like you know Adolf Hitler, or something like that. All French sounding surnames had to be changed to German surnames. Official language of Luxembourgish was, was you know, outlawed and German was now the official language. And the celebrating of certain holidays and traditions was also outlawed because they were not sanctioned German holidays. And one of those holidays was St. Nicholas Day. So Harry finds out that after nearly five years of of being deprived of this, that St. Nicholas Day was rolling around in about three weeks. And they finally were going to be able to celebrate this holiday, which is really kind of, it's a holiday where Christmas is more of a a family holiday. St. Nicholas Day is sort of a, a, a Christmas slash, say, Thanksgiving slash Halloween, all rolled up into one holiday, mainly for the children. So Harry hears that they were going to be able to finally celebrate, but didn't have anything with which to celebrate because of the ravages of war. So he's, he takes it upon himself to say, well, look, there's got to be something we can do. We're the U.S. Army, for God's sakes. You know, we, should, we should be able to help out. And he gets this idea in his head that he wants to throw a Christmas party for the children of Wilts. And that's where the story began. That's fantastic. And reading the book,
2: it's really interesting because, you know, as an American, a lot of our uh, traditions and culture comes from that part of the world. And it was really fascinating to read a bit more about a, a twist on that, about St. Nicholas's Day. And um, and it was, uh, I tell you what, the the there's there's two main characters in the book you just pointed one out not main characters but main players in the book one is is, is Corporal Harry Stutes and the other is Corporal Richard Brookins. uh which I'd like to hear you expand a bit more on that because he was kind of the gateway to you writing this story but Harry Stutes I mean I was really impressed with how you wrote how much of a role he played in having this light bulb moment right. and all the things he did behind the scenes logistically to 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 make this celebration happen and make it as special it is as it is. I mean, I I was really impressed by that.
0: But what's amazing is how he stepped back from the spotlight and, you know, remained in the shadows, so to speak, you know, in a in a sense, with with the whole thing and let, you know, Richard, you know, or asked Richard, you know, Richard Brookens to kind of be the American Saint Nick and um, so it, it's pretty interesting, you know. Like Tony was, and I have said, it seems like Harry's really the guy. You know, I mean, Richard was kind of thrust into this position
2: reluctantly. You know, was he but, ever? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was he ever? And so, um, since since he was the person that you got to know, who kind of brought you into this story, could you maybe share for an audience just a high level overview of um, of of Dick Brookins and what his role in this in this celebration was?
1: Yeah. In fact, you know, you, you know, uh, Ryan even said it reluctantly. And that is, that was the key word, Harry and, and Dick were good friends. Uh, and at the time they were also roommates. Cause again, they were billeted in this, uh, in the Bellevue hotel. And, uh, uh, Harry, you know, he was going around town with this idea that he had, and he had run it up the uh, the command flagpole, so to speak. He, he went through all the proper channels to to his sergeant and to the to the you know the master sergeant who took it to the to lieutenant to the captain, and, and so forth and so on. And it gets uh, across the desk of General uh, Coda Dutch Coda, and. Uh, Coda thinks it's a great idea. He thinks it'd be great for PR. He thinks, oh yeah, let's do it. So he you know, he says, yeah, do do what you need to do, and even commissions uh, the printing of invitations yeah. to be handed out to the to the families in Ville's. Because again, he think, you know he uh, Coda's not stupid. He realizes that you know they could use some good PR based you know of where they had been in the hurricane. So he says, ah, oh, it's a great idea. And Harry runs around and he's you know he forms this. Loosely forms this Christmas committee, so to speak, where he he enlists different uh, members of the uh, signal company message center, which is the which worked in headquarters and they were in what they were tasked with was was coding and decoding messages all day that 's what they did and they were at the signal company message center and they worked in, in in headquarters right in the center of town so he he corrals a bunch of people from there to to help out with you know to gather up rations from anybody that wanted to donate to help the cause. He wanted, uh, he um, talked to the company cooks to get to make uh, cookies and, and, and baked treats for this, for this party that he's going to have. He goes to the, teachers in the town and because he and he he arranges with them what day it'll be best and harry Stutz (laughs) was also jewish which i think is one (laughs) of the most amazing side points of this whole thing he knows nothing about say nicholas day catholicism anything like that so he actually has to go to the local priest in town to sort of get a little background around what this all means and when he does he's like okay (laughs) and it occurs to him in order for this to really really work and to really sell this He needs somebody to play Saint Nicholas because, again, after nearly five years, Saint Nicholas has to return to Vils. We the kids have to see Saint Nicholas, so he's scratching his head and he thought, you know, maybe he should do, maybe he should play Saint Nicholas. But he had so much going on with trying to arrange everything, and he got the idea. The light bulb goes off, and he's like, Richard, I'll ask my roommate Richard to do it. So he goes to Dick and he says. You know, here's here's what I'm planning. Here's what I've got going on. You know, uh, and we need to say Nicholas would, you know, would you be Saint Nicholas? And Richard thinks about it and says, no, <laughs> get somebody else. And Harry's like, what are you talking about? And, he, and, and D- from Dick's point of view, he was he, he realized even then that what Harry was, you know, that th- what Harry was putting together and that a fact that it was already sanctioned by by the general and they knew it was going to be a big thing. Richard's thing was he didn't want to screw anything up, you know, because he goes, "I don't know what Saint Nicholas is. I don't know what he does. I, I know nothing about this. I don't want to be the guy that messes this up and like it's this whole thing's remembered for the wrong reasons," you know. Yeah. But, yeah, a bunch of young kids, right? Yeah, so he's like, you know, get somebody else. And then, but Harry, Harry just had this way about him that he was just he he, could, he worked he worked on Dick Brooker to the point where Dick finally acquiesced and said, "Okay, all right, I'll do it. Fine. What you know? What do I need to do?" And he said, that's, and I guess that's when he told him, oh, well, you got to wear a costume and you got to and he starts telling him all this. And Richard, of course, didn't realize that at the time. He thought maybe I just throw a hat on or something and, you know, fake beard. He didn't realize there was a whole costume to, 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 to dress up in. And uh, the costume ended up being the local priest's mass robes that he donated for this, you know, for for the use for this event. And um, they made uh, the nuns at the, uh, local girls' school, which was inside the Viltz Castle, where this event was going to take place, because they already coordinated this with the, with the teachers. Remember, they, this was all coordinated. It was going to happen inside the courtyard of the Viltz Castle, and um, the nuns had made him a, a bishop's miter hat to, to sort of to go with that, um, and he carried around a like a shepherd's staff. It's called a crozier, and they also knitted him out of a piece of rope, a rope beard to look like, you know, Santa Claus or Saint Nick. <laughs> And so Richard had to wear this, this get-up during this event, and so he, he does. And he, you know, they, they put him into a Jeep, and they drive him through town, and in, in the Jeep with him are these two little girls from the girls' school, the best in class, because there was a competition now, who would be selected to be St. Nicholas's helper. And as Richard tells you know, the story himself, that at that time, the costume did such a great job of hiding his identity— That, except for maybe his army boots, if anyone bothered even to look down, were the only thing that would identify him as maybe being a GI. And he had also, Richard, like when he was in high school, had studied some German. So he, and and also being in Luxembourg and being in the war and such, he he had picked up a few phrases along the way. And uh, in Luxembourg, they spoke German, they spoke French, and they also spoke, you know, their native uh, language of Luxembourgish. But he knew enough German to like ask. The children, their names, and you know, mother, father, things like that—just little key words. And so, when he was interacting with these kids, these kids you know, were wide-eyed with amazement because, oh my God, here is Saint Nicholas! And it was important to have this jeep procession through town so that. The boys' school in the center of town would be able to see that St. Nicholas was there. They would parade through town so that everybody could see that St. Nicholas had returned. And the Jeep would end up back at the the castle. They would just did a little circuit around the town and go back to the castle where the party was going to be. So everybody could see here, after all this time, is St. Nicholas in the flesh? And that was the party that they threw for these kids in Viltz that one day, December 5th, 1944.
0: I'm it's suggesting. amazing i mean yeah i mean just it's 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 amazing i, I think it's on one hand amazing that general cota approved it you know because i was thinking to myself you know the the military is thinking i, I if i i would have thought back then, they would have said no way you know you guys right. get get back, get back to work you know you know, right. get, get rested up and so on but it's uh, it's amazing that it went up that high up the ladder and was approved. And of course, then Harry was sanctioned to be able to. You know, he was like, "All right, I can do this. I got approval to the from the top brass."
1: Yeah, and, um, Harry Harry had, was was a bit of a wheeler dealer too. So he, you know, he knew how to like work the levers and, and get things to happen. So, like for him, this was this was great. And, I, and at first. You know, Dick at first thought like Harry was doing all this just to, to, to get out of doing like, you know, any, any uh, hard work, like a, you know, like, like this is a, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So he thought, well, like, oh, he's bricking, He's just trying to like, you know, get out easy. But then, you know, it, 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 as he saw Harry, you know, doing all this, he realized he was doing it because he really wanted to, this to be a success. He wanted to. to, to oh, yeah. You know, this was genuine. He really wanted this to succeed and wanted to do something nice for these kids. And and, um, and again, it just amazed me. Here's this 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 Jewish kid from like the, the the Midwest, Harry Stutz, you know, roaming around the, the predominantly Catholic country of Luxembourg, trying to arrange a St. Nicholas party for these kids. It was just, there's, it was so, there were so many like threads there. That, that was, it, it's amazing. And what's even more amazing. And it's like, you know, I keep saying amazing and you know, it, it, it's, 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 you know, I'm saying it's a, a wonderful and amazing story, not because I wrote the book, but I wrote the book because it's such a wonderful and amazing story. And, and yeah. one of those amazing things is that there's actual video, film, of the yeah. original event. in. I found it in the National Archives. Of the original event from 1944, photos of it, stills of it, are actually in the book. Um, and uh, the book was was made into a documentary film. And a lot of the film from that original event is in documentary film. But I, I always sort of extrapolate out and say, okay, the film was shot by a couple of combat cameramen who had been out on assignment that day and were on their way back to Vils because Vils at the time was the headquarters for the 28th Infantry Division. And their job, you know, they're coming into Vils and they're going to you know, drop off their film and that's it. They were done for the day. And as they're coming into town, and I, I can't stress enough how small Vils is, is that basically one road comes in from basically the South winds around the, the, the castle and then goes out to the North. And, you know, since then it's expanded a bit, but let's like remember where we are We're in 1944. So it's basically this one road in and out of town kind of thing. And they're coming, they're coming into town. And if they take a left down a street called the Rue de Tondour they take them right to headquarters and they can like park the Jeep, drop off their film. And, you know, and that's it. And as they're ready to take that left up ahead, coming out of the castle portal down the grand Rue. They see what looks like Santa Claus hanging off the back of a US Jeep. Now, fellas, that's not something you see in, in war-torn Europe every day. So it
2: would be more of interest. Then, and
1: so they were like, hang on a second. So they follow the Jeep around to down to the boys' school in the center of town, which actually was right in front of headquarters. And the guys in the in the you know, the combat cameraman sort of elbow some of the soldiers standing around saying, What's going on here? And they they sort of let them know what's going on. And they said we're going to go end up back at the at the castle there if you, if you guys are interested. And and they thought to themselves, well, yeah, we've got some extra film on the on the reels. Let's let's go set up. So they did. They sat. They they set up their cameras and they filmed the jeep coming through the castle portal with Saint Nicholas and his two angels in the back. And it's a very iconic shot. I mean, it's actually the cover of the book, and it's it's one of the things they recreate every year. We can get that later. But they filmed this. They filmed this event. And in again. We, we have this video, we can actually see the actual event, we can see the children, the people from 1944, that day it actually happened, and as a writer, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a writer, and <laughs> as a writer, you know, one of the things you do when you talk to people and do interviews is that you, you're taking their memories and their, their impressions of things, and you're taking them on board, you're writing your notes, you're compiling it with whatever other data that you, you have, and then you're formulating that into a... a, a uh, sort of a cohesive nugget that you're presenting to, to the reader. I didn't have to do any of that when it came to this part of the book because all I had to do was watch the film and describe what was going on. And I'm I'm literally sitting there writing, oh, here's Richard in the Jeep through the castle portal. Yeah, Richard in the Jeep through the castle portal, and he's surrounded by children, he's surrounded by children, and they're wearing costumes. They were, and I'm just literally writing down what's happening. It was like, this was a a writer's dream. It was like, my God, here it is. And um, I always like to extrapolate out. I do a lot of presentations, and and I always tell the audience, let's think about this for a second. If that Jeep with the combat cameraman had come into town 30 seconds earlier or 30 seconds later, they would not have seen the Jeep with Richard Brookins coming out of the castle, and we wouldn't have the film. But as... As luck had it, they came in at just the right time. And, and guys, I always say, this story is a magnificent confluence of, of luck, circumstance, personnel, um, just timing. Everything, everything had to happen at exactly the right way, exactly the right time for this story to come together the way it did. And it did. And that's why we have it to this day. And it's just, it's just a fantastic um, I, again, it's a fantastic thing to have the story, but also to see the actual video the actual film from that day and these children, I think is amazing. I mean, the word
2: that kept going through my mind as I read the book,
1: and it's been reinforced by hearing
2: you describe it more fully, the word is magical.
1: Magical. Yeah. It would have
2: been really a magical moment for those kids, for the GIs who needed to break from the horrific fighting that they endured in the hurricane forest that you mentioned earlier. Right. And then it, it, it was kind of a, a magical moment that, like you said, that these series of highly improbable events led to this being documented in a way that it it, it, it would not have been otherwise. And I, I, Ryan, and I, through the course of of the interviews and some of the people we met, have had these instances shared with us from other people. And um, they they they've happened in certain instances where Ryan and I just think that some things were meant to happen. That maybe there was some some force that was trying to make right. it so that these sort of things we made available. Um, how – now, the other thing that I thought was interesting is because this was documented and because you had a chance to, through a chance run in, get to know the person who's was the son of Dick Brookins, how important was this documentation to – To the community, to the community being able to remember and celebrate this event. Uh, You intimated it a few times in the past where it's not like this happened and it was forgotten about. I mean, this became kind
1: of legendary. Well, you know, yes and no. It was forgotten about. The GIs forgot about it. You know, don't forget for them, it was a wonderful day. a Great day, good break from, from the war. But don't forget they also had a war to win and a war to fight still. This was December 5th, 1944. Uh, the Battle of the Bulge happened on December sixteenth. You know, so it was like literally like 10, 11 days later. They're in the in 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 the fight of their lives, and when the Battle of the Bulge happened, Luxembourg was front and center f- for this for the fighting. They, I mean, they the Germans poured through Luxembourg to get to that crossroads town in Belgium that we all know as Bastogne, and so it was in Luxembourg. Now here's where the town was. The 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 country and the town of Hills was destroyed by the fighting that ensued, and Richard Brookens, as it as it were, he was up in Clairvaux at that time. And again, this is all detailed in the book: is how he, how and why he's up there, and um, he's he's rocked out of bed at five in the morning on December sixteenth by the first artillery shells that are landing in Clairvaux. And Clairvaux was important because there were two bridges that that crossed the Claire River. That allowed the Germans uh, one of the only paved and and somewhat um, non serpentine roads through the Ardennes and, and and a fast track to again to Bastogne. So capturing Clairvaux was was one of the one one of the the, uh, the key points at the be, the beginning of that battle. But you know, the, as we all know, the Germans swept through Luxembourg, and and in the in the course of the fighting, the town of Wiltz was all but destroyed. I think it's like. 85% of the town was destroyed by, by the fighting and ironically by Allied bombs that that had that the Allied bombing runs that were needed to, to basically get the Germans to, to retreat out of Wilts once they had recaptured it. Um, and even, you know, even so, even though the, the, the people in Wilts knew that it was the Americans or the Allied bombing that had basically destroyed their town, they never Never forgot the kindness and generosity of that handful of American soldiers that won Saint Nicholas Day. Now again, the guys they they put it out of their minds. It was it was just a day. And they had a war to fight. They went on, and, and then once they retreated from Vils, and they did, um, you know, their their assignments as the 20th Infantry Division sent them elsewhere. They were sent up to the Alsace Lorraine region, and their fighting continued up up there um, after after the Bulge. So they never went back to Viltz, but the people in Vils never forgot. And when the war ended, um, they vowed, especially this one particular uh, guy in town, he was, his, he was 16 years old at the time of the party, but he vowed he would never forget or allowed to be forgotten the kindness of those soldiers that one day. So he made it his sort of life's mission, if you will, to try to find those soldiers that had been there that one Saint Nicholas Day, and he tried everything. He went to embassies. He tried the army. He tried um, veterans. He tried everything he could to yeah, locate this is like these guys. Internet, right? Oh so yeah. It's no, this free, is we're right? talking. Right. To, yeah, that's hard to do. Yeah. Right. Where this was, this was you know in, in the fifties, sixties. He and they would oh. wall after wall after wall. he was running into, and the only thing he knew was there was a uh, aside from. The, the uh, combat cameraman that had been there that St. That Nicholas Day, there was also a photographer from Stars and Stripes. Don't forget, CODA said it would be great for PR, so he made sure there was a Stars and Stripes guy on hand. And sure enough, the, that, the, the photo of Richard Brookens in the Jeep coming through the castle portal was on the, the front page of Stars and Stripes uh, at one point, and they had that photo in a museum in the castle in Viltz after the war. So that was their only connection was this photo, and they knew the a soldier's name and the town that he had come from, you know, in 1944. That's all they had, and this this gentleman's name was Gene Schweig. He tried everything. And any time any veteran would come through Vils, because at that time, a lot of veterans were returning, you know, well after the war, you know, 15, 20 years later to sort of retrace their war days and war steps. He would always uh, ask them if they were in the 28th, and did they, did they know Richard Brookins, and did they know about this? And again, with a division of 9,000, no, most of them did not. But our good friend Luck stepped in again, and it was in the early 70s, or the mid-70s rather, uh, of a soldier by the name, uh, or a former soldier I should say, by the name of Frank McClellan. He had been a, an NMP, military police, and he was actually um, one of the last to leave VILTs during the bulge. Uh, he, he volunteered to stay behind with some other soldiers to help defend the withdrawal, but in the process ended up being captured and spent the rest of the war as a POW. Well, years later, he decides he's going back and he goes through Vilt and he's going to spend the night there. And Jean approaches him and asks, him, were you here during the war? And he says, yes. And, you know, were you at the 28th? And yes, I was. And one thing leads to another. He said, well, would you come to our, our, our museum in the castle tomorrow? And he says, sure, I'll, you know, I'll go. And they get him into the castle and they show him what's, all the displays that are going on. And it's, and it's, and it's bringing up a flood of memories for, for Frank. And then they show him this photo on the wall. And he said, you know, do you know who this is? And Frank looks at him and goes, uh, the priest. And they say, no, no, this is a, this is a GI. He's a soldier like you were. And he says, well, no, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know him. And Jean really kind of worked on him and, and and actually convinced Frank to go home when he went home to try to see if he could look up to see if this soldier, Richard Brookings was, was still alive and had made it out of the war. So Frank, promised him, probably just to get him off his back, <laughs> promised him that he would. So he continues on his journey and then goes home. And sure enough, he finds the piece of paper. He wrote the name down and he's thinking, like, how do I go about this? And he remembered from um, one of the, the uh, important to remember, the 28th Infantry Division was the Pennsylvania National Guard. And so w- at one of these National Guard reunions that they had every year, uh, he, re- he had met um, a guy who uh, had been with the signal company um, and a guy named david kelly and he remembered that david kelly worked for the phone company so he gets this idea frank does that maybe he could give this guy david richard's name and the town where he lived and maybe he could punch it into some like you know ibm computer which at that day probably took up four rooms (laughs) and maybe maybe spit out like some something anything so he calls up (laughs) calls up david kelly Oh my God, guys! Here's where our good friend luck and circumstance comes into. It. He calls up David Kelly and he starts saying, you know, talking to him a little bit and what's going on. And he says, "I need, I would like you to your help in trying to find this guy." And David says, "Well, we're not really supposed to do that kind of thing." Uh, you, you know, let, give me the guy's name. Let me see what I can do. I can't do it right now. I'm, I, I'm going into a meeting. Give, you know, I'll get back to you. What's his name? And the guy says his name is is, is, is Richard Brookins, and it's Richard, and then it's B R O. And he starts spelling it out, and David Kelly says. Brookings? Richard Brookens? He says, yeah. Why? He goes, I taught him how to use the Sagaba, which the Sagaba was like the U.S. equivalent of the Enigma machine. He goes, I trained him on that. And he says, you're kidding. He goes, no, in fact, he works for the phone company. I saw him just a couple of weeks ago. So oh like gosh. again, it's like our good friend, Luck and Circumstance is like haunting this story. It's like, oh gosh. So Frank sends you know tells the people in Luxembourg, hey, we found your guy and Gene Schweig ends up writing a letter to Richard Brookens and s- explains that since the war ended they have been the people in Viltz remembering this event from 1944 every year since they reenact the jeep procession through town now it's not a, it wasn't always on a jeep it was sometimes on a float or on a on the back of a donkey or something but or or basically or even like a horse pulled cart but they would recreate the jeep procession through town just like the G.I.s did during the war. They would have somebody dressing up as, and it's a very great honor, to be dressing up as not just St. Nicholas, but as the American St. Nicholas. And they would you know, put him in the jeep and, or whatever the vehicle was and parade him through town. And they would end up at the castle just like they did during the war, through the castle portal just like the G.I.s did during the war. And they would hand out treats to the children just like the G.I.s did during the war as a way of honoring those soldiers. They did this religiously for 30 years. And here comes the 30th anniversary of the rebuilding of their town. This was like 1977. And Gene's idea was to get this guy, Richard, and anybody else that they could, to come back to reprise the roles that they had during the war. So Richard hears this and, and he's blown away because again, since the war ended, they never thought about this day. To them, it was just that day. They never so for 30 years, he's number one, he's blown away by the fact that that they're asking him to do it again. Number two, <laughs> that they had been doing this for 30 years without his knowledge, and then they're they are heroes back there, and they didn't even know it. Yeah. Well, Richard says, Absolutely, I'm gonna go back. And he calls his good friend Harry, who also survived the war, and says, Harry, you're not gonna believe this, but and so that. That's how it all began. Again, so in 1977, Richard Brookens, Harry Studs, Frank McClellan, and a few of the other guys that were there returned to Viltz so that Richard can recreate his role once again as the American Saint Nick. And the difference was in the first... December 5th 1944 there was probably 30 40 kids there for this this first event this time there was probably uh 3 4 500 kids as plus, oh, wow. plus like thousands of parents so this was huge this was it was as NBC was there filming it it was it was just an incredible event and and Richard remembered that during the war the uh, Luxembourg language was forbidden to speak by the the people in Luxembourg because it was outlawed by the Nazis, so as a in a way to honor them, he had prepared some remarks that he would give to the crowd that had gathered there to see the return of the American Saint Nick, and he learned phonetically how to deliver his speech to the to the crowd in their native language of Luxembourgesh. and that was his way of honoring well, them fantastic. for remembering what they had done during the war. So i, oh, I, I mean, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it because it just that's just such an amazing thing and And you know, you mentioned that you know Harry was the the behind the scenes ringleader of this whole thing and And Harry loved the fact that it was that Dick was doing this because as far as Harry was concerned, Dick was the perfect guy for it. He represented everybody, and Dick always you know said it every time it's, it, I do this not I do this every year, or I do this every time I go back, not for so much for him, but for all the guys that couldn't be there. Who you know had been there through the years, so you know Dick would go back on all the marquee events. You know the, again the 40th anniversary, the 45th, the 50th, the 60th, and so on. And he would always remember all those who had participated and made that very first event happen.
2: I tell you what, I I, I read the book, and just
1: listening to you recap it, kind of got me emotional again. I <laughs> mean, well, you know, it's funny because that's the that's the story, and I, and, and I want to say. You know, you know, we're we're doing this podcast, and I know, you know, people are going to say like, "Well, why should I buy the book now?" Because, or you know, why do I need to read it? I know the story, I, and I and I, I say this, and I'm not trying to sell books. Trust me, but I say this with with all well, honesty. There's so much more to this yeah. story. So much more detail involved that, again, it's our good friend, uh, like circumstance and luck and amazement. That there's so much more to it that is worth knowing of this story. That I think it is absolutely worth uh you know, people going out and, and getting the books so they know. And, and you know, and that was my whole purpose for writing the story from the get-go was I thought it was an amazing story. And the more I found out, the more I dug into it, the more research that I did, it, it became even more incredible. And it was just one of those things where I can't believe people here don't know this story. People in the U.S. don't know about this. In Luxembourg, these guys are celebrated as heroes every year. And here in the U.S., nobody knew about this. And I was thought, well, how can I, what can I do to change that, to get people to know it? And the best thing I could do to think of was to write this story, write this book to to mm. honor these guys for what they did and so that's that was my whole reasoning for putting pens of paper in, to begin with
0: well i well thank you for sharing all that information I mean it gives a great uh overview for anyone out there that's interested in this story um you know you've got another book that that you've written that I want to hear more about, and it's more of a, a more recent book but um so tell us about um Merg. Uh, that's a book uh, that you just recently written, right?
1: Yep. Merg was, um, <laughs> strangely enough, I f- fell across the story of Merg when I was in Viltz one time with Richard Brookins, And I mentioned earlier about, you know, whenever we would talk, he'd always bring up these like little nuggets of, hey, did I ever tell you about? So we were sitting in um, the front room of, of uh, the Hotel Du Commerce in Viltz. And uh, we were having a conversation and he said to me, uh, so, Peter, did I ever tell you the story? Uh, did you ever hear the story about uh, the, the church at Eschweiler? And I said, no, Dick, you never told me about the story about the church in Eschweiler, because, again, <laughs> this has been another yet, yet another story he hadn't told me about. <laughs> he goes, uh, well, do you, uh, you have your car? And I said, yeah, it's right out right. front. He goes, well, come on, let's go. And Eschweiler was about four miles north of uh, Wilts. And he brings me there, and um, the story of Merg is that this church in Eschweiler. It's the Church of St. Mauritius, and it is the only church in the world dedicated to the memory of a single American soldier, and that soldier is George Mergenthaler. And George Mergenthaler was also with the 28th Infantry Division, but he was with the 28th Cavalry Recon Group. And with uh, without getting into too much detail about it, um, his is a story of Ultimate sacrifice, because this is a guy, George Mergenthaler, who literally had it all. We know we always say, oh, that guy's got everything. You know, that guy's got it all. No, this guy really did have it all. He was, you know, he was smart. He had Ivy League education. He was uh, had movie star good looks, you know, very handsome, very gifted athlete, um, uh, just very charismatic. Everybody loved to be around him, and oh yeah, he was filthy rich. And I mean <laughs> filthy rich. He was the sole Male heir to the Mergenthaler fortune, um, and his grandfather helped, or, or basically built that fortune because his grandfather had invented the Linotype machine, which was the single greatest achievement in printing at the time in the mid you know mid eighteen hundreds since the Gutenberg press, you know, like the wow. Gutenberg Bible. So uh, the Linotype was the was the machine to, to revolutionize, revolutionize the printing industry and it made the Mergenthaler family famous and extremely wealthy and by the time George was born in nineteen twenty he ended up being at that time the sole male heir to this fortune and again that's covered in the book as how he became that so he was all that and he was he was rich and he was just as humble as can be and when the war broke out he could have certainly taken some sort of a backline job, but he insisted on serving as a simple buck private, um, much to his, his fa- against his father's wishes. Yeah. And he um, spoke fluent German and French. And when they found out about this in basic training, they said, boy, have we got an assignment for you where you're going to be part of a recon group. And so he was part of this recon group that got attached to the 28th. And so recon was always the, the group out in front that would go into, uh, into towns and everything. And their their role wasn't necessarily uh, combative. They weren't there to engage the enemy necessarily, but merely to uh, establish, you know, where the enemy was to maybe, uh, s- see from the locals, uh, uh, what, what, what the, um, where the Germans had retreated to, if they had it, what kind of strength they were in to try to assess, you know, you know strength numbers and then report all that back to headquarters and the headquarters would then, you know, uh, adjust battle plans accordingly. However, you know, that <laughs> best laid plans to say like, they weren't meant to engage the enemy didn't always work out that way. Of course, they did end up engaging the enemy uh, quite often. And they again. When we're at the twenty eighth. They were also in the Hurtkin. and they when the Hurtkin battle for them was over in mid November. This particular recon crew ended up in this town of Eschweiler, and uh, being the only soldier in the group that could speak to the natives, again French or German, they really embraced George and you know pretty much welcomed him as one of their own. And um, they in the you know in the month that they spent in this village. George and the and the people in town really bonded and became very close. And he became very close, in particular, with the the priest in the in the uh, in the church. Um, would often help him with uh, the mass duties, et cetera, et cetera. And um, when the Battle of the Bulge happened, they were le- they were ordered to defend the town at all costs. Um, and they did as long as they could. And and they were forced to retreat hastily, retreat in, the, in, in a convoy, and they they left town and unfortunately drove into an ambush. And it was in that ambush uh, that George was killed. And I, I go into a lot of detail about that in Merg. And um, what what's amazing about that ambush was that George, in the manner of his death, died um, being able to provide cover for the rest of the recon troop and allowed them to escape the German uh, onslaught and escape into the woods. Many of those uh, soldiers were captured, but they were about... 29 or 30 of them that actually did make it back to allied lines and, and continued the fight. And even those that were captured were taken to POW camps and survived the war. And what what's ironic is that George basically died buying enough time for these men to escape. It, and all of them survived the war. And what I find very poignant is that there are f- generations of families in existence today that owe their very existence to George Merkenthaler and they don't even know it, simply oh, because yeah he allowed their fathers or great, you know, or grandfathers or whatever to, to, to make it out of the war. And um, George's body was found months later and they were, it was found by the townspeople and they reburied him in the, uh, in the church cemetery. And then after the war, the Mergenthaler family, they, um, he was an only son. They found out that uh, their son had been killed and uh, the priest had written a letter back home to George's mother and father explaining how much George meant to, to the town. So the Mergenthalers offered to help them rebuild their church, the place where George had spent so much of, the, of his time when he was in, Ville, in uh, Eschweiler. And um, they offered to rebuild the church, basically brick by brick, stone by stone, just as it had been prior to the war, including the hand-painted mural behind the altar that, that displays Jesus feeding the masses, the only difference is that this time the mural uh, in the mural, there's Jesus feeding the masses with the help of an apostle, who mm. is dressed in army fatigues and uh, bears the likeness of George Mergenthaler. And if you walk into that church right now, to this day, you look at that and you see that mural. I dare anybody to do that and not have their breath stolen from them. It is powerful and moving, and basically, Merg tells the story of this town, of this church, and of George Mergenthaler. And it was one of those, again, he's revered as a hero there. And here nobody knows that story. So last thing was George's impression that even years, years after the war and long after you know his death, the house where he had stayed in Eschweiler uh, for just a couple of weeks, they still referred to the room he stayed in as George's room.
2: Oh, so wow. they would
1: say, oh, you know, I left my sweater upstairs. I think it's in George's room, but could you go and get it? And it was just, I mean, that's how much of an impression he left with the people of that town. And it, you know, if you're driving on, on the road to that church, there's a memorial on that roadside. Uh, approximating where his body was found. And there's a monument there where there's always flowers there. They always keep flowers there. And there's, the, of course, the church, which is which is this monument. And Merg tells this entire story of him and his family. And it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a more somber read than St. Nick. But again, I think it's one of those deserved reads just because it is a story of the ultimate sacrifice and what it means to this day.
2: Mm. And, and you're telling me that, or telling the audience, that you, you wouldn't have even known about this story if it weren't for the work you had done with Dick Brookins
1: on on the story and the book of the American St. Nick. Correct. It was, it was Dick that showed this to me to, to the very beginning. Cause he had, you know, he had mentioned, did he tell me about it? No. And he, he and I drove there and, and I still remember clear as day. We both walked into the church at the same time. And, uh, and it was just, you know, he, Dick just stood there and looked around and I was, I was amazed by what I saw. And, uh, and, and, and actually Dick, really didn't say very much as he was standing in the church. And at, at some point I was, I remember saying, wow, this is incredible. And he's like, he just kind of looked around and goes, um, let, let me know when, when when you've had enough. And then he turned and walked out. And it was just, wow. It was just, it was a, it was a powerful moment for him, you know, and I was just, and I was over, you know, it was, it was powerful for me to be there for the first time, but you know, this is not the first time he had seen it. And he just, you know, he didn't, he was happy that he showed it to me, but it was like, yep, that's who George was. He knew, George, and he they never met They never knew him personally but um they he knew the story how, so was,
0: How did he hear about the story then? I mean if he was if he didn't know him and he never met him was it just something that he how did he find out about it to tell you?
1: Well because um when you know he don't forget he had been back to Wilt so many times through the years that this was this was part of uh, of Wilt the excuse me the town of Eschweiler uh is is a commune of Wilt now they they're both um sort of married together. And and this was all, you have to understand, it's all in a very close knit community. So Eshwali is just a very small, small farming village at the time. So when Dick goes would go back there, there were people from Eshwali that would come and meet him all the time. And that's how he got to know it and got to know the church there. And and again, you can't drive down that road without seeing the monument. And so um, uh, it's, it's, it's actually one of the roads. that If you go from Vils to, 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 uh, clairvaux you'll drive right past this monument so that's uh, how he knew about this
2: so i mean i'm buying this book
1: (laughs) 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 i love to be your your first
2: your first book was phenomenal and and merg sounds sounds great as well i i i got your book through kindle on amazon and all that i mean do you prefer uh, is there a certain place you prefer people to to purchase your book from or does it not matter where can people get your
1: books well I mean they can they can certainly get it through all the usual outlets Amazon Barnes and Noble etc they can uh get it through the uh, my website which is com. there are links to uh to get the book there and uh order it direct and uh you know we can we can even autograph them if if they if they so desire they make great, great, great gifts. <laughs> and, and what you
2: said earlier, Peter, I want to reinforce, you know, we we spent a lot of time having you describe the story from the American Saint Saint Nick. But as someone who's read the book, and I know, Ryan, he's nodding too. there's so much more in this book that 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 the reader will get out of the the Cliff Notes version that you just heard on this podcast. Right. Um, I'm Peter, it was masterfully written right from the very beginning. No, seriously, right from the very beginning when you talk about Frank McClellan, that, that's kind of how the book starts. Your writing actually kind of put me back into like a middle-aged World War II vet body, you know, trundling along the streets <laughs> of Wilts. Just not exactly sure where they wanted to go and kind of stumbling into this saga. And from that yeah. point on, I was hooked. And yeah. and there's so much more with, 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 you know, how the men became POWs and the things that occurred after the war. Uh, We really encourage our our readers to um, to pick up this book and Merg. I'm getting Merg. That that that's that that's a foregone conclusion. (laughs) Well, you know, I will.
1: I also wanted to mention, you know, a couple times I mentioned the film um, of the event from 1944, and I think I referenced the documentary film. I wanted to uh, also make note of the fact that this is a. It, the book American Saint Nick was made into a documentary film. It was an Emmy-winning documentary film, as a matter of fact, and uh, that was done by the World War II Foundation. and The, and the reason I mention that is um, because I, I, I've done presentations where we've screened the film, and then we talk about it, you know, do some Q and A with the audience, and um, I've, I always make books available if people want to buy them, and without doubt, they do. Because, as I try to explain, even though you've just seen this film, and in the film you hear from Richard Brookens himself, and unfortunately Harry was was gone by the time the film was made, um, but you hear Richard Brookings and you hear from the people in Wilson what it meant to them. Um, even though you hear that and 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 you see the film, even the film doesn't isn't able to achieve the amount of detail that goes into the telling the story. And in fact, one of the the the, the, the funny little nuggets about that was the film was made by the World War II Foundation and Tim Gray uh, is the president of the foundation. and He was making the film and would run the scripts by me to sort of say, like, you know, are we on the right track? Is there anything you think we should change? Anything, And I would... And I always flood him with a sea of, well, I don't know, maybe maybe should go into more detail about the teachers because you know they did da 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 da, and he's like, well, and he would always had to put my brakes on and go, Peter, right. if I tried to put everything that you have in your book into the film, it'd be like four hours long, and we'd all be <laughs> asleep. Yeah, I, be like Dr. I, he goes, Chicago. right? because I can't. He goes, what what I can do is I can bring visual life to the film with interviews and such, uh, but I can't put the amount of detail that you have in the book into the film, and that's just the trade-off that we make. So I just, I just. I want to put that out there, and again, just to reinforce that, the, even though we we've talked about it here, and even though there's a film out that maybe people have already seen, there's still so much more detail in the book that I think you know warrants a, a read, just because it really does uh, tell the story as it deserves to be told.
0: You know, I was just going to say, um, you know, Tony and I and our families were back over in Europe this summer for uh, uh, we we were accompanying a World War II vet back to Omaha Beach. And then after uh, our veteran friend left to go back to the U.S., our families drove up to Wiltz, Luxembourg, and got to spend some time there and everything. And, uh, you know, went through the museum there at the castle and, uh, you know, walked through that very arch that they drove through across the right. bridge, their little drawbridge that they have, you know, and— um Beautiful town. I mean, it's nestled down in the valley and everything. You're right. It's probably a lot bigger now than it was then. I know I was there in 2004, and it's grown since 2004 also. I was pretty shocked, but beautiful area.
2: What was cool is, you know, Ryan had read the book by this time, and he wouldn't stop talking about it. He's like, "We're in Wilt. I read this book. This is the castle. Here's the road. There's where this went here. You know, here's all this stuff." Right. And he's like, "You got to read the book." So what do you think I did? when I got back home. I read the book, right? And and, <laughs> and here you are, kind of in full circle. Um, but it's it was uh, it was really cool being able to spend time, you know, with Ryan, with someone who understood, uh, could put a personal perspective to all these bricks and buildings we were seeing. Right which your Brooke does masterfully. And in, and in fact, you know, as, as we wrap up this, this uh, air raid edition of the Peter line podcast, <laughs> uh, we want to, we want to let our audience know that the story of the American St. Nick is not over yet for all of our listeners. Please tune in next week. I think you're really going to enjoy what we're going to be able to share with you during the holiday season, uh, very well so, said.
0: Nice teaser, Tony. Perfect.
2: <laughs> I'm saying it's going to be awesome. You're going to love it, um, Peter. Is there anything else that you want to share with us that we haven't had a chance to to cover uh, during this interview?
1: Well, no, no. Probably the only I just uh, uh, to, to to sort of magnify the story a little bit is that actually, um, in the story continues to to <laughs> delight and amaze audiences in that in in 2019. Uh, the town of Nancy, France uh, got to know this story because in Nancy, France, it is the, probably the biggest celebration of St. Nicholas Day I've ever seen in my life. It is, it is spectacular. as huge. If anyone ever gets a chance to do it, please do. It, you will not be disappointed. And uh, in 2019, the, the town had their St. Nicholas celebration, and they always have a, a guest country uh, hosted with them, and that happened to be Luxembourg that, that time. And as such, the story of the American Saint Nick became front and center. And the film that I've, I've mentioned, they, they took that film, they subtitled it in French. And we had quite a few programs where we screened the film with French subtitles and did Q&A, just like we t- talked about. So there was a whole new audience in France that was getting to know the story of the American Saint Nick and then to, you know, even move forward um, as as we speak, the dutch version of the american saint nick is 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 going is due to be released in just days so now uh, the people in the netherlands will be hearing the story of the american saint nick in dutch for the first time so it's 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 all 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 things good all things
2: good that's real that's really cool uh, yeah thank thank you for being part of that thin layer of society that uh, appreciates these sort of stories and captures them and makes them available for future generations. The only regret I have about the American St. Nick is I got the Kindle version. Uh, when I get Merg, I'm going to get the hard copy edition <laughs> so that people can see me read it. You know, I can tell my friend exactly. Get this. <laughs> I need to get, get you to now, Peter. So. Hey, do yes, you do exactly.
1: that, <laughs> so, and that's, and that's the old version. <laughs>
0: Yeah, ah, I was gonna say this okay. is a, little bit, a bit older. I think the cover. I'm holding up the cover of my book right now on the on our our computer screens here. <laughs> I think I don't know which one I have here, which what, what when it came out, but uh, yes, I think I've seen newer covers and stuff that look different than this. Yeah, so. there's the,
1: the 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 newest version of the story because again, you know, it kept continuing to grow and grow, and and every time. I mentioned Dick telling me little nuggets of stories. Well, as, as the years went on, I started to incorporate that into because I oh, knew good. there would be another version. So I started incorporating some of those stories into the newest version. And the newest version is the 75th anniversary edition. And mm-hmm. it is the most up to date edition. And that came out in twenty nineteen, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. So course. Ryan. It had to be the seventy fifth anniversary, of course
2: so that's the version i read so what that means ryan is for all of the knowledge that you imparted on me from reading the book when we we're in wilts i actually have the most up-to-date
0: information i <laughs> know more than you about
2: this now
1: <laughs> hey guys let's, let's 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 keep it friendly <laughs>
2: <laughs> so uh, peter we we are uh Sincerely honored to have you on our podcast. As I've already mentioned to the audience, we're not done with this yet. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to be on here and explain to our audience the story behind the story behind the story of the American St. Nick and your recent book, uh, Merg. Uh, Ryan, any your final comments?
0: Yeah, I just want to say about the American St. Nick story itself, and I've said this off, you know, off the air to you guys and stuff, I feel like this story... You know, it's it's a like we've talked about before. It was a flash in the pan, sort of, uh, you know, moment of really great goodness and generosity and love, and a time when there was so much horror and and death and killing and meanness going on. You know, from you know from the other side. So it's just a great. Um, a great, um, little microcosm of, of awesomeness that happened right about that period, right before the bulge started, literally exactly. 10 days before it started. Exactly.
2: So. Well, let's, let, let's see if we can make this a little bigger. So it's not just a little firecracker <laughs> flash of light. Let's see if we can't, <laughs> let's see if we can't make this stick more and become part of a uh, canon for some of our history lovers out there, uh, yeah. during Christmas time.
0: Well, all right. But, all right well, hey, um, I think that wraps it up for today. Um, Peter, we can't thank you enough for joining us. This has been Tell really Tony Ryan, thank fun. you guys
1: for having me. It's It's been great. Well, good. All
0: right. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll sign off here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and stay tuned, okay?
2: All right. Take care. Until Talk next time, you. Twinders. Bye.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for listening today, everybody. Hey, if you're looking for a Christmas gift and you're interested in ordering the American St. Nick or Merg, You can find them at Amazon.com or you can order them from Peter's own website at www.peterlionauthor.com. Let's make a new Christmas tradition by reading these books each year in honor of our veterans.